0: of this series about human sexuality because in one month's time I will actually be returning to you from called General Conference in the United Methodist Church and we will have made some sort of decision. What remains to be seen is whether that decision will immediately be enacted at called General Conference in St. Louis, Missouri, next month, or whether it will require ratification. Our church is modeled very much like the American government because we are an American denomination and we have a constitution, and if you change the constitution, then it must be ratified, just like a constitutional amendment would be ratified in our civic system. So. If that happens, then we have to figure out whether or not we as a local church and whether the Virginia Annual Conference, a a regional conference in the greater church, how we feel about what the decision is and what will happen there. So I realize that this creates in us a lot of anxiety and fear and people keep asking me, well, what's going to happen? No one knows what's going to happen no one knows we have a parliamentary church which means that we are governed by robert's rules and so the uh, the proposals that came out of the commission on a way forward which was put together by the bishops the proposals that came out three of them came one of them has already been ruled unconstitutional by our judicial council which is our supreme court in the methodist church and there's two proposals on the table well because of robert's rules anything can happen. Anyone can put forth an amendment, a proposal, a whole new plan, a motion to change things. So rather than me distributing to you the incredible paperwork, how many pages was it? Like 45 pages? a lot of pages, rather than giving you all those pages and and going through nitpicking with you trying to figure out what was going to be proposed, I know that already there are caucuses and groups and organizations and boards and societies within the Methodist church that have put their own spin on things that have their own proposals. And so rather than get you tied into two things that may not even come up we are we are more moving into equipping ourselves in discernment and prayer so that we can see what happens when we're there a lot of people are starting to uh, voice the prayer that despite the fact that we thought we were putting 32 of the best and brightest in methodism to work that god will bring up somebody and just you know use them to speak god's truth to us and we'll all go why didn't we think of that and hallelujah so that's kind of what we're, we're we're working with right now it's it's a place where we don't know what will happen, but what we do know is this, that we are part of a church that believes in holy conferencing, which means that we must be physically in the presence of one another to pray and discern, discuss, and vote together. We know that. You can't phone in or email in a vote. You must be present so that the Spirit can move in our midst, and we believe that when the Spirit moves in our midst that God can do things that we could never fathom, amen? So we, that is what we are, we are praying for. So as we come into this sermon today, I just want you to know that I recognize that there is anxiety and fear and concern. I mean, some people are getting excited. Um, I'm not really excited about traveling to St. Louis, and half of my family's from Missouri. Uh, instead, I- I'm a little more excited because I believe that God can do something that we can't figure out. I believe that God can bring forth truth in the midst of chaos, order in in the midst of our strangeness, and help us to find a way forward. I believe God can do that. And so with that, I'm going to unpack the scripture for you. This one's a tough one. Like last week, this is a letter of Paul. And Paul was writing to the church in Corinth. And Paul wrote to the church in Corinth a lot. In fact, the letter that I just read to you references just one chapter earlier that Paul has already written them a letter. That letter is lost to us. We don't have it. In fact, we believe that Paul wrote four or five letters to Corinth. They were always having some kind of issue that required Paul to send a triage letter. And so one of the things that they wrestled with there, Paul actually quotes their motto a little while later in chapter 6. Paul says there, all things are lawful to me. That was the motto of Corinth. I can do whatever I want. We are a liberated people. You know, I I can do anything I want. Well, yes, the question is not whether you can, but whether you should, right? That's the question for us. And Paul has us wrestle with that in other letters too. Just because you can do something, if it causes you to produce in another a stumbling, then you shouldn't do it, right? You will not be a stumbling block for another. Paul wrestles with this a lot and it encourages the churches that he plants to wrestle with it too. What are you doing that is causing someone else to be confused, to be led astray, to practice something that is hurtful to them and their spirituality? He always wants us to be looking back and critiquing what we say and do so that we are part of the solution and not part of the problem, becoming an obstacle or a barrier. And today he writes to them because there were people who said, yeah, Everything is lawful for me, and if everything's lawful, then I can keep doing what I'm doing. Well, just because something is legally lawful for you doesn't mean that that's what God wants you to do, right? That's not not what God's about, and so God is trying to get us to look at a different way of living, and Paul is the ambassador for that, and Paul goes forward and says, don't you know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? that instead that you can't be confused and deceived by that don't believe that lie that we have to be repentant people then he goes through and he names 10 things for which we are going to have a trou- we're going to have trouble here and Fornicators is the first one. Fornication is having sex with anyone to whom you are not married. If you are not married and you are having sex, then you are a fornicator. That's not to say that you are evil and irredeemable. That's just the reality of what that is. So fornication is having sex outside of marriage. And that's not a heterosexual thing or a homosexual or a pansexual, a bisexual, asexual. That's just sex with someone to whom you are not married. Idolaters. Idolaters are actually people who are worshiping something other than God. And repeatedly in the Old Testament, God accounts idolatry as adultery that the people are being adulterous instead of being faithful to the God who is faithful to the people they end up worshiping other gods and we think to ourselves well why would you do that why would you worship another God if I'm a farmer and I'm wholly dependent upon my crops then I might have a propensity to take up the practice of my neighbor over here who worships Asherah who is a earth fertility goddess because everything that I have in my future and my ability to provide for myself and my family is in the ground, and if the ground doesn't yield, then I might cover my bases by not only worshiping God but worshiping Asherah, you know, hoping that somewhere someone's gonna provide for me. And God says, You don't need to cheat on me with another God, that instead I am faithful, I will provide for you if the crops fail. God would still provide. We see this in the church all the time. Just because we have people in our congregation, in our community, who are gainfully employed doesn't mean that there aren't times of financial struggle. And when they turn to the church and say, I need help with my mortgage or I need help with my utility bills, the church provides. We don't turn around and, and worship the God of mammon so that they get a raise. We provide and meet their needs. And God is saying the same thing. I will provide for you. You don't have to cheat on me. Stop worshiping other gods. Because God's a really jealous God. God doesn't want us worshiping other gods. And paired right with idolaters is adulterers. Adultery is having sex with someone who is not your spouse. If you are married, if you are married and having sex with anybody else, then you are committing adultery. And God is not okay with that. And one of the things is that it's a mindset, that having an adulterous sexual affair means that you are in the mindset of saying, I can have both. I'm not going to practice fidelity and God has already had that problem with worship, God doesn't want to see that problem in our relationship. It's about being truly committed to the person to whom we are bonded, our covenant with them, the covenant with God and the covenant with our spouse. And so God is not a fan of that. Then we get to the fun part. Are you ready? Male prostitutes and sodomites. And both of these are in the connotation of homosexuality, specifically male homosexuality. There's almost nothing here talking about lesbianism or women who are having sex outside of heteronormative sex. Instead, we're talking about anal sex here. And the Greek lets us know that Paul is talking about both participants. The word that gets translated as male prostitutes is actually the person receiving anal sex. And the one that is translated as sodomite is the person giving the anal sex. And I just recognize that I just said anal sex a lot, and let's just take a moment and just be uncomfortable, right? That's, that's weird. Let's just be honest. That's weird. It's uncomfortable. But it's here because in Corinth and in other places in the ministerial area of Paul, this was normative culturally. People were engaging in this behavior. And Paul is pointing out that it's not just the person that is committing an act. It's the person that is receiving and allowing it. If you are benefiting from the sin of somebody else, you are sinning too. And Paul is, is very careful here to say that both of these people are playing a role in what's going on. Now, that's separate aside from whether or not we're going to be inclusive in the church. I'm just explaining to you what Paul is talking about in his letter. And he is talking specifically about men engaging in non heterosexual sex. But he continues on from there, he, saw, he moves into thievery. Thieves are people who take what is not theirs, they are stealing. They are taking something for which they have not worked or earned or for which they have not been given permission, and they take it because they want it. They take it. And the greedy, people who are so consumed with consuming and acquiring that their entire focus is on getting more. Drunkards, people who are just in a constant state of drunkenness and all of the things that go along with drunkenness from being abusive to being reckless causing people pain and suffering, and in our modern context, we know death. He condemns that, people who spend all of their time inebriated. Revilers, I don't know if you know what a reviler is. A reviler is somebody who is verbally abusive. You ever encountered somebody verbally abusive? A verbally abusive people who uses hypercriticism to cause pain and suffering, they also engage in gossip. And revilers are a huge problem. In fact, it's one of the critiques that's thrusted at the church, that we are a bunch of hypocrites who engage in backstabbing and gossiping. Have you ever had someone in the church gossip about you? Right? Have you ever gossiped about somebody in the church? You know, one one of the worst things that I've ever seen is when we can pervert the prayer chain. Have you ever seen this? Where it starts out as we're going to pray for somebody, and the next thing you know, it's like, whoa, we're not praying for somebody now. Now we're just spreading gossip. And it's incumbent upon us to make sure that that's not what we're doing, right, that we are engaging in praying for people, not spreading information. You move into gossip when you are sharing information to show that you have power, right, that now I have power over somebody, and I'm going to use that. And gossip causes pain and suffering. How many people want to be gossiped about? Do you want people talking about how they didn't like your shoes? Absolutely not, you don't. Instead, we should be focusing on things that are positive, right? Things that are encouraging and that equip people and help them to do the work of the church. And Paul is dealing with revilers, not only against him. People were constantly reviling Paul, but people were reviling not only Christians, but each other. It's from the outside. And Jesus says this, blessed are those who are persecuted and reviled for my namesake. People are going to talk bad about you. Jesus recognized this, and Paul recognizes it too, but that doesn't mean that we engage in that behavior. He's discouraging that. And then he ends with robbers. Robbers are thieves. They're taking something that's not theirs, but they're doing it with the threat of force, violence. They're using an extra means in order to take what is not theirs. It's especially abhorrent for you to take something that is not yours, but then to be face-to-face and confront someone. And in our case, this would be armed robbery. That's our current understanding of it. It's one thing if I go and steal your car. It's another if I take a gun and hold you up at it and, and make you give me your car. Those are absolutely abhorrent things that we don't want to engage in in any way. And Paul is combating that. And why is Paul combating these things? Of the 10 things that Paul listed... Only two of them don't apply to heterosexuals, and maybe they do. 80% of his list is gauged at all people, all genders, all ages, all states of grace can engage in these things. And Paul was suffering internally because they were. He knew that there were people that were doing it. He continues on in his letter to say, in verse 11, and this is what some of you used to be. You used to be fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, male prostitutes, sodomites, thieves, greed, drunkards, revilers, and robbers. Some of you used to be this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in the spirit of our God. You were these things. Now you are gods. And the message repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and the ministry of Jesus Christ is that, yes, we were broken broken fractured mortal beings we were sinners and then the grace of god came to us and because of that grace we are no longer yoked to the behavior of the past and those identities these are people who are identified their central understanding of themselves is that this is who they are they are greedy they are fornicators they are revilers they are idolaters this is who they are And instead of being centered around an uh, an ideology and an identity that is in God, they are centered around what they want, what they need, and what they do for themselves. None of these things in this list are done for God. None of them are done for the glory of God, the building of the kingdom, and the establishment of peace on earth. They are done because we want to do them. And it is a natural thing to want to do those things. I've told you before that when when an infant is born, it is not a sinner. It hasn't committed a sin. But right about 18 months, right, that's my magic number, right about 18 months. Because you know what a kid discovers at about 18 months? I can take that. Usually the first thing kids do is they learn to steal, right, is like take it. And sometimes it's almost robbery because they're like, I am taking it and I will bite you if you don't give it to me. Right, They're, they're very into that. And it's not that this is an evil child and we need to get rid of this child. It means that we retrain the child. You can't do that. If you want it, you must use your words. We will teach you about sharing. We will teach you about how we can work together so that you can have what you want for a time or you can have it permanently. But you're not just going to bite somebody and you're not just going to take it. You're not going to hit anybody if you don't get it. We work to train them so that they will grow up the right way. And that's the struggle that the church is facing right now. How much of what we're discussing is about us trying to train people, and how much of it is about us simply telling people that they cannot be here? That's the struggle within the church. And what we fail to realize, what the people didn't realize time and time again in the Old Testament is that they weren't the nation of Israel because they were the nation of Israel, and so God loved them. That wasn't it. God loved them, and God was their God, and they were God's people, and so they were the people of Israel. The church is no different. We aren't the body of Christ because we are so awesome, and God loves us and blesses us. We are loved and blessed by God, therefore, we are the body of Christ. And we live that out differently. It's understanding that it's not us, but God at work In us and through us that changes how we function in the world that our means of going out into the world in ministry and mission is because we understand what the profound salvific grace of the cross can do we understand that God's love and blessing not only changes us but can change this world so that the sufferings we have experienced the sins that we have committed others may not do that we strive for this in certain areas of our life already The church actively strives to combat and eliminate racism, sexism. We're not so good yet on ageism. We're working on it. But there are other things that we recognize that you can change attitudes and hearts and minds, and therefore the world will be changed. The question we have to ask ourselves is, what are we trying to change and why? What is it that the church is trying to do, and what is it that God has placed upon us to do? Because the critique from outside of the church is always, the church is a bunch of hypocrites. They engage in backstabbing and gossiping, and they're sinners just like everybody else. They think they're so perfect. And there are probably churches and Christians that think that. They would be wrong. We are the saved sinners. We are those who have sinned. Depending on what you're doing right now, you could be sinning right now. And most of us are going to go home, and throughout the week, we are going to sin. The difference is that we don't want to sin, that we want to leave that behind. We want to take the grace of the cross and let it change us so that we no longer do this. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. Every sin creates pain and suffering, every single one. The metaphor I often use is like a brick. Every sin is a brick that builds a wall and it creates a barrier between us and God. It also creates a barrier between us and others, especially since every brick requires us to hurt someone else. If we are simply engaging in sex so that we can have gratification, then we are using another human being. I realize we live in a culture that talks about two consenting adults and it's fine. If that were wholly true, if it were true that consenting adults can simply do this and there's no ramifications, I wouldn't have to spend so much time in counseling, care, and conversation with people who have become emotionally involved, who have found themselves pregnant out of wedlock and are denied the partner that they should have to raise a child. Instead, and that's just heterosexual sex, We recognize that sex is powerful, that it allows people to have a connection that is beyond words. It allows people to meet in a way that is transformative but can be terrifying. Paul will go on to say that, don't you understand that anyone that is united in the flesh becomes united with the other? And then he goes on at verse 18 to say, shun fornication, because I've told you before that Paul is all about, we just need to stop. We just need to stop being so sexually obsessed, that what we end up doing is becoming so consumed with our desire to pursue sexual gratification that we're willing to overlook what happens to the other person. We're willing to overlook what happens to ourselves, that we become consumed with that ends. And it's a struggle not only in the ancient church, it's a struggle in the church today. All of the things that Paul lists, all ten of them, they are still a problem in this world. I'm willing to bet they're a problem in Crozet. I'm also willing to be honest and say they're probably a problem in our church. However, just because I may not be committing that ten list of sins doesn't mean that I'm not committing sins too. All of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. The struggle and the work that we are engaging in as individual disciples of Jesus Christ as the body of Christ here at Crozet United Methodist and as the body of Christ in the denomination of the United Methodist Church is, where do we stand on what we do about the reality of sin? What are we going to say? Because I told you last week that I don't believe that anybody is actively trying to destroy the church. First of all, that sounds like mass paranoia. And second of all, I don't believe in that level of conspiracy. Do you recognize how simple the conspiracy was to crucify Jesus Christ? His friend walked up to the high priest and said, what do you want for me to give you him? And they said, 30 pieces of silver, sold. That's not a conspiracy, that's a transaction. Instead, people are honestly struggling with trying to figure out what we do about sexual inclusion. And, and they're trying to do what's best for the church. They're trying to do what's best for the future. They're struggling with that. And we may not agree on what's going to happen because the reality is if the church does nothing, if the church stays exactly the same as it is, people will leave the church. If the church goes completely inclusive and radically changes its stance, people are going to leave the church. If the church goes more conservative, which is one of the proposals, If the church becomes more explicit and more conservative, people are going to leave the church. The reality is, no matter what we do, someone is going to leave the church. And that breaks our hearts. And we could get into the woeful state of trying to mitigate our losses. What can we do that will keep the most people here? That is not our task in the church. Our task is to be true to the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is a harder path to walk. You can poll people and find out how much they will tolerate before they will leave. You can poll people and do that. In fact, I hate to tell you, there are Methodist churches that have done this. How much are we willing to take before we walk? The harder, the holier work is to say, what is it that God would have us say and do? Because some people look at what Paul was saying and, and, and see that what Paul is saying is that everybody should be invited into the kingdom of heaven, but there are standards. There's accountability for people who want to be a part of this. Because there's a reality that we will be expected to enter into unending worship in the presence of God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. And if you don't want to be a part of that, then that's your decision. But that is what we are building and working toward. And so we need to make sure that we open the doors, but that we're keeping a dress code. Other people will say, no, our job is to fling wide the gates and make that pathway as wide as possible and get as many people in there as possible. That's our job. I believe that there's some middle ground there. That our job is to invite everyone in and let people recognize that grace means that we are transformed. What that transformation looks like is what I and every Methodist are wrestling with. What does that look like? Because the reality is that all of these things that create pain and suffering in Corinth and in Crozet and all over the world are still happening because we are still human beings. We are still people who feel and think and want and touch and taste and see, and we struggle with sinfulness. But the difference is that because of Jesus Christ, we are not only able to reject the things that cause pain and suffering in our lives, but we can be transformed so that we no longer do them. Where is the problem in us? Jesus actually, I think he's taught about this, right? that some of us will be more obsessed with a speck in somebody else's eye than the log in our own. And so Jesus recognized that the church was going to wrestle with how we interpret things, how we understand. What binds us, what makes us who we are as a denomination is not that we are united because we are Methodists. We are Methodists because we are united. We have been knitted together by God's grace. People who under no circumstances would choose to hang out together, desire every Sunday to not only be in the same place, but sing the same songs, listen to the same music, pray the same prayers, and hear the same scripture. That doesn't happen week after week in other spheres of the world. But here in the church, we choose to do this. We choose to be bonded and knitted together, and in some cases, yoked to others that we would not choose. That is because God's grace is greater than our desires. And if we are willing as a denomination to wrestle with what that means, then God will show us who we are supposed to be. But I know this, that we are called to be gods. And God's grace is sufficient, it is abundant, it is enough. Not only for me and for you, but for them, for us. God's grace is enough. The other thing that struck me as I was preparing for this sermon is that we have to recognize that people are going to leave. People are never going to come to the church because of what happens next month. People are going to leave the church because of what happens next month. We have no idea the ripple effects that this called general conference will have. We know the ripple effects that have happened in the church because we haven't had a called general conference. So now we're trying to do the right thing. But we can't expect not to be changed. Something will change. And the... the Metaphor, the story, the lesson is in Jacob, the man who would be named Israel, whose children would become the tribes, and from him would come the nation of Israel. There's a story in Genesis about him coming back home, and he ends up wrestling, and depending on the translation of the text you read, it's either just a man, it's an angelic being, or it's God, God's self wrestling with this being overnight. And as the sun is beginning to rise, the being says to Jacob, let me go, I have to leave. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. Holding on tight, I am not going to leave until you bless me. And the being reaches out and knocks his hip out of joint. Handicaps him, disables him, so that every step he will take for the rest of his life will be marked by that encounter. It will change not only him, but how he is seen, how others treat him, how he is received. And he will never know a moment where the powerful and transformative encounter with God did not leave a mark on him, visible to others. That is what called general conference is. It is about this denomination being changed forever. And the hope and the prayer is that the work that we are doing now as individual Christians, as this local body of Christ, as other bodies of Christ are doing it, so that we as the global church can do this, that what will actually happen is that our story will only get better from here. Jacob's story doesn't end with him becoming disabled and going home to his tent and never leaving again. It ends with him continuing to grow his family, continuing to create people that leave lasting impacts, that have lessons and stories and identities that still transform not only Judaism and Islam, but Christianity today. That we can see ourselves in the one who is fractured and imperfect and yet blessed so that others might be blessed through them. That is what the church is called to be. And that is the struggle that not only Corinth But Crozet is in this day. That there is no easy answer. And we have to recognize that we are not going to make everybody happy. If I decided to treat all of you to a meal right now, someone's going to say, well, I wasn't in the mood for that. Instead, we come at this from the idea that we know who God is. God is a God of grace, truth, and love. And we are called to reveal that to the world. How do we do that? I don't have an answer for you, but I know who does. And so I hope and I pray and I listen and I talk and I wait to see what God will do because I've known too many people to put my faith in people. But I do know that God has repeatedly throughout the scriptures, the unending testimony of the Old Testament and the New, is that God can do things through fractured, imperfect vessels like this. And we believe that. We are a people who worship at the foot of a cross. We're a human vessel encapsulated divinity. And for 33 years, it changed the world. And it is still doing it today. May we all be vessels of that same transformative power and grace. Not only this day, but every day. So that like Jacob, every step we take will show that we have been forever changed.